0: Hello and welcome to Power Problems, a podcast from the Cato Institute, where we offer a skeptical take on U.S. foreign policy and discuss some of today's big questions in international security with guests from across the political spectrum. I'm Emma Ashford.
1: And I'm Trevor Thrall.
0: It was the love affair that shocked a nation. I'm referring, of course, to Donald Trump and Kim Jong-un, with whom the American president, as he memorably put it recently, fell in love. Of course, the relationship wasn't always so happy. It's been a two-year roller coaster for the US and North Korea. We had the early tweets about Little Rocket Man, Fire and Fury. Then we had the abrupt decision to engage in a Singapore summit, a rather unorthodox decision for the two leaders to meet before any deal was actually agreed. Correspondence relationship between the two followed, with the Trump White House repeatedly claiming that North Korea was about to completely denuclearize. Now we've had a second summit in Vietnam where talks apparently broke down as both sides sought maximalist demands. So if you're having trouble following what's going on with the U.S.-North Korean relationship, you're not alone. Luckily, we have an expert with us today, Harry Kazianis. Harry is the Director of Korean Studies at the Center for the National Interest, and we're looking forward to getting his thoughts on U.S.-North Korean relations and where we go after the Hanoi Summit. Welcome. Hey, guys. As always, let's start with a bit of a roundup of this week's news, Um, and I thought we might start by talking about Yemen. Congress is still attempting to uh, censure President Trump over the US support for the Saudi-led war in Yemen, but Congress's attempts to do so have been stymied yet again. This time the Senate parliamentarian ruled that an unrelated writer meant the bill wasn't privileged and so it doesn't have to be voted on. Supporters say they'll just bring up a clean copy of the bill. So, what can we expect to see moving forward?
2: Nothing. That's that's just my take, to be honest with you. I mean, I, this is my non-expert opinion as somebody who's not followed the Middle East. First of all, why are we even involved in Yemen? I mean, I don't I don't understand why we're even supporting the Saudis in this. I mean, obviously it's you know because of alliance relationships, and I'm sure the military industrial complex and all the dollars that are involved with that, of course. But the broader point is is Yemen doesn't even get into the news here in the United States, and it really is a, a tragedy. It really is a shame. I mean, the amount of people that are starving, uh, the humanitarian crisis that's involved, you would think the United States would play more of a mediation role, and I maybe you guys can correct me. Maybe I'm just completely wrong, but I don't see that happening, and that's a shame in and of itself.
1: Yeah, no, I totally agree. I, I, there are so many good reasons it seems to be on the other side of this, trying to dampen the conflict rather than... Continue it that it's curious why Mitch McConnell would work so hard to find ways to thwart uh, what seems to be a fairly sensible. Uh, maneuver. I mean, I, boy, I learned something new about Congress every day with these things. I, where do they find these tricks? I don't I don't even understand.
0: Yeah, for me, it's that's the big question. Maybe it's just because I'm a little too deep in the weeds on the Yemen and Saudi question. But the question of why Mitch McConnell is so willing to avoid ever bringing this bill up for a vote using all these different mechanisms and presumably wasting time he could be using for other things, I continue to find that quite strange.
1: Hmm. Yeah, you'd think he'd have other better things to do than worry about this? I mean, yeah, it's not going to hurt McConnell, is it? I mean, you know, yeah. I can't see. But
0: Well, I guess we'll see. Supporters of the bill say they're going to reintroduce a clean copy pretty soon, um, and that will be privileged. So Mitch McConnell can't prevent a vote. So we'll keep an eye on this moving forward. But Let's move on to our second Middle East political crisis of the week, and that's Israel, um, which is facing more of a a political crisis because the Prime Minister, Benjamin Netanyahu, is about to be indicted on corruption charges a couple of months before a big election. Um, Seems like this could have some pretty serious implications for international relations, not just domestic Israeli politics. Any thoughts?
2: Well, I guess I'd offer that, you know, it seems like this had been coming for a while from what I can gather. It seems like there'd been corruption charges swirling around the prime minister for a while. Um, I mean, just in terms of general foreign policy thinking on this, I mean, you know, maybe if Netanyahu does not get reelected, he gets indicted, you know, he's no longer prime minister. Does that lead to a change in the temperature on Iran? I mean, I've seen so much really hot rhetoric here in Washington that I I never thought I'd see. I mean, I knew that there was a lot of people in the neoconservative camp who, you know, who wanted to see regime change in Iran, you know, using this whole nuclear weapons issue as a a pretext for that. But some of the hot rhetoric coming out of Israel, I mean, I, I understand a lot of where it comes from. But, you know, maybe there's some silver lining out of this. I don't know. But, you know, I guess like President Trump likes to say, we'll have to see what happens.
1: Yeah, this is going to be one of those interesting tests about how much leaders matter, how much parties matter, uh, because yeah, Israel's had a fairly hard line in Iran for decades. And so I'd not in, in some regards, I don't think it matters whether it's Netanyahu and Likud or, or someone else. But on the other hand, there you know, if you look at sort of the peace process, it, it does tend to matter which party is in control in Israel. So, you know, you might be right here that, that you know, if he gets thrown out and Likud gets thrown out, then you never know. Um, but it does seem like Israel and the United States have more in common these days than you might have thought.
0: Yeah. One of the things I find fascinating about this is that Netanyahu, despite all of this, is actually still fairly popular in Israel. You'd think with these charges, this would not be like a close election that we're looking at, but he is still fairly popular. And to some extent, people attribute that to his foreign policy, his extremely hawkish foreign policy on Iran, the peace process and other regional developments. So maybe his replacement would be very similar. Well, let's talk about our last story of the week. And that's a pretty minor story you might have missed. Um, But Donald Trump finally nominated a replacement for Nikki Haley as the US ambassador to the UN. The nominee is Kelly Craft. Uh, She's a donor. She's currently the US ambassador to Canada, but not really any foreign policy experience. This is the first time that anyone's really suggested nominating a political donor to that kind of high... Profile political role or ambassadorship seems like this is a pretty worrying precedent.
2: Yeah, I'm I'm concerned. To be honest with you, just looking at the track record of Nikki Haley, I was not a fan of Nikki Haley. I mean, some of the things she said about North Korea. I don't know if you guys had saw this, but there was a lot of reporting after she would resigned that I guess during the heat of of 2017, that September, she made comments to I guess it was the Chinese ambassador at the UN, basically said that or intimated that you know I'm not sure what my boss is going to do on this issue, quote unquote. And, you know, that might be a reason why you'd want to go along with our maximum pressure campaign. Imagine a situation where the Chinese ambassador relays this information to the North Koreans, the North Koreans panic and do something, you know, more more missile tests, preemptive strike, who knows? So I think it's very clear that this UN ambassador role is an important role, and we need to have somebody there with some experience, some expertise some at least knowledge of global affairs. And I was not obviously a big fan of of Heather Nauer either. I mean, she was in the State Department. She did have at least a little bit of experience, but I, I think there's something for expertise and this is not in that vein.
0: I mean, it does strike me as part of just this worrying trend. It's not just Trump of appointing donors to high-profile ambassadorships more generally. I mean, that's been a a growing trend in U.S. foreign policy for years. But I mean, this is definitely a political role. This is a role that is very high profile, speaks for the U.S., involved in policy decisions. Nikki Haley was even uh, actually at the cabinet level, if I remember right. Not sure if it will be going forward. But I mean, just seems like appointing people just because they donate a lot of money is is just incredibly concerning.
1: And I think part of what it tells you is how centralized American foreign policy making has become around the president, because he doesn't care who's in that office. That person means nothing to him, because he doesn't think any business happens there. He didn't think Rex Tillerson mattered, right? He doesn't think the Secretary of State matters, really. I mean, right? Unless it's one of my guys, right? And 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 so I think, you know, I, Harry, it's interesting. You know, I mean, I normally think if you have a sort of a weak person in that role, that's kind of a, well, you don't get any plus, but probably they're just going to go to a lot of meetings, no big minuses. But, but you point out there is some potential danger in someone who's actually bad at that job. So that makes me worry a little, a little more. But I do think, Emma, you're right, that, you know, sort of padding the nest with donors um, is just going to sort of, you know, continue to weaken the overall sort of ability of America to conduct foreign policy.
0: Well, uh, I guess that sets us up pretty nicely, or not, (laughs) for our main topic of the day, and and that's North Korea. So it really has been a roller coaster over the last couple of years. Um, And we haven't really talked about this in the podcast for, for a while, I think over a year at this point. So, Harry, I thought we'd maybe start by asking you just to give us your take on how we got to the current situation. What's the sort of the good, the bad, the ugly of the Trump administration's approach to North Korea?
2: You know, I, I've been looking at this issue for five, six years now. I was originally a China expert, sort of shifted to to North Korea just because of how fascinated I am with the subject. The one thing I've sort of come to the realization on, I, I used to be very much a hawk on this issue until about, I'd say about a year ago. And what changed my opinion was the, the fundamental reality of North Korea's nuclear weapons program. I mean, let's face it. They have potentially as many as 65 nuclear warheads, chemical, biological weapons, ICBMs, a thousand missiles. This is a big program. At the same time, the United States keeps doubling down, tripling down on this policy of denuclearization, CVID, FFID, whatever we want to call it. The, the fundamental reality is this: there's probably a really good chance that North Korea is not going to give up its nuclear weapons, or the price they're going to want for those nuclear weapons is so astronomically high that politically you just can't pay it. So it puts us in this position where if We aren't able to get some sort of deal on denuclearization. Where do we go? And I I think what really needs to happen here, and this is my hope—I don't think it's probably going to happen, but maybe my dream—is the United States really needs to rethink of North Korea and think of it as we do China, as we do Russia, as other nuclear weapon states, where the most important thing is deterrence holds—that we are able to 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 make sure that there is no nuclear war, no ever thought of nuclear war. And then you start the process of rebuilding that relationship, whether we have a peace declaration, liaison offices, um, there's a lot that can be done to secure that peace. I think if anything, if you go back to what happened in 2017, fire and fury, threats of nuclear war, all these things, you come to the realization you can't have that happen again. So for for the summit, just my quick take on what I would offer is this. Yes, we did not get a deal on Young Beyond for sanctions relief. Trump did not get his big deal where, you know, North Korea would give up all its WMD and we would drop all the sanctions. But the interesting thing is this: there was no fire and fury. There was no crazy talk. Both sides were very complimentary of the other. Um, they were still willing to talk. that the relationship held. I think that's progress. A lot of people may think, oh, that's you know, that's low-hanging fruit. Who cares? But, the most important thing is peace. If if we're not going to get North Korea to denuclearize, we're going to have to have some sort of relationship with them. Maybe this is the first step towards that.
0: You know, I, I generally do actually agree with you, but I think I'm going to push you on that just a little okay. because uh, I think there is a concern about all of these terms that have been thrown around. You said, what was it, idea, like complete and verifiable denuclearization and all these acronyms that we've come up with. And It really does seem as though the Trump administration either believed its own hype and genuinely thought this was a possibility, or were perhaps just willing to say that publicly and then it sort of became they had to actually do it. So It's not clear to me that the administration has actually given up on those very unrealistic goals, whether they really believe in them or they're just trying to pivot away from it in a public relations sense. What are your thoughts on that?
2: I I agree with you. I think it's it's one of those things where I think in a perfect world, if you were a U.S. president and you looked at this objectively, you didn't think too much about the history. Maybe Donald Trump could do this. I don't think so. You you come to a place where you realize it's going to be very difficult to get the North Koreans to change their threat perceptions of the United States in a world where – We've enacted how many different regime change wars, how many trillions of dollars we've spent, and how irrational we've been on foreign policy for the last 20 years. So that is going to be really the, the, the fundamental problem with all of this. If it was me, what I would suggest to the Trump administration is don't give up on denuclearization, but make it the end of the process of normalizing relations with the North Koreans. You know, Liaison offices are a good idea because you can talk through these problems with them if there's a crisis. You end the Korean War because that will incent Kim to build trust with us when that's the one thing he keeps fundamentally talking about. So I, I think we have we're doing the hardest thing first. When I tried to explain this to my wife a few days ago and I was explaining this whole North Korea denuclearization thing, she looked at me and she says, it's okay. It's like trying to have a first grader do calculus when you're not even teaching them how to do addition it's, you're doing the hardest thing first. It's not going to work. So I think that's the, the, the fundamental simplistic reality of the problem. So I, there are so many
1: questions for me around this. And Emma, you, you touched on one, like what, what does the Trump administration believe? I mean, did, did they not see the facts the way you've laid them out? Did they Sort of believe like I think a lot of new administrations have a lot of optimism about what they can do. Like we'll solve Israeli-Palestine, you yeah, know, we'll solve North Korea. Was it was it that? Was it just Trump, his own Trump, just himself believing that he could do it through this relationship? What what, what what's the vector here?
2: You know, it's it's interesting. I mean, the latest reporting that we have right now is that Steve Began and his team, when they went to Hanoi, they were there for about a week, sort of having these marathon sessions with the North Koreans. And it seems like the North Koreans were very clear what their position was going to be. They wanted to offer up Yongbyon. We don't really know the extent of the facilities at Yongbyon they were going to give up. I mean, it's massive, massive complex, hundreds of buildings. And at the same time, they wanted five of these 11 UN Security Council resolutions, the ones that were put in place in 2016 and 2017, that are the bulk of the sanction regime. Uh, Things like exports of coal, textiles, we're talking billions of dollars that are worth North Korean economy. So they knew what the terms were going into this. According to the latest reporting, the North Koreans would not pivot off that. So Trump comes in, I don't know what the what the strategy was, is maybe they thought Trump could be like the closer, that he could come in, you know, change the dynamics, change the calculus. And I, I don't know if that was really realistic to tell you the truth. The other thing for X Factor you have to throw in here is the whole Michael Cohen investigation, for me, I felt like there was a deal that could have been hatched around young Beyond. Maybe we could have changed some of the, the the sanctions. Maybe we could have thrown in South Korean, inter-Korean cooperation. Maybe that was something you could do that's worth billions of dollars. But if Donald Trump feels boxed in at home, feels like he can't make a deal, does he try to go for the bigger deal to blunt all the media coverage You know, try to go for the grand slam, so to speak? And maybe he just struck out.
0: Perhaps that's an explanation for sort of the other part of this puzzle, right? Because we've been talking about the US negotiating position, but the North Korean negotiating position is really interesting too. The North Koreans, and I think particularly Kim Jong-un, have actually very effectively manipulated Donald Trump. I mean, that sounds very harsh, but I think it's true. Flattery designed to play to an ego that likes flattery, um, stringing along with You know, language that sounds like what he wants, even if it's not actually what he wants. Um, You know, but it seems like in Hanoi, that just broke down. He went into the room, they couldn't come to an agreement, and Donald Trump suddenly realizes they don't want what I want. Um, like Like, the Koreans basically failed to manipulate him.
2: I think that's true. I, I think the North Korean strategy is pretty clear to 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 flatter the president, to have I'm mean, not forget when when one of the North Korean officials was here, I think about a year ago, he gave this huge envelope of a, a message. I mean, you couldn't really make it any more Trumpian than that, right? I mean, if they'd given to him a gold envelope, maybe. But you know, I, I think it's pretty clear what they're trying to do. You're exactly right, Emma. Uh the question is, I don't, I don't think it worked. I think they put a lot of impetus on having these leader-to-leader negotiations because they know they're not going to pull one on John Bolton or Steve Began or, or Mike Pompeo. They know who they're getting in the room with. Donald Trump doesn't know the difference between uranium, plutonium. He probably can't even find Pyongyang on a map. So they knew the guy that they wanted to negotiate with, and they, they, they think that they would get the quote-unquote best deal from him, and it, it didn't work.
0: I guess that opens up the question of advisors. Um, which is one. And so everyone's been sort of speculating pretty wildly since the Hanoi Summit uh, about whether John Bolton was sort of standing in the wings killing this deal um, or whether it was other advisors inside the Trump administration. And so I don't really know if we have enough evidence to actually make a call on this, but do we think this was advisors? Uh, do we think this was just Trump himself boxed in at home?
2: It's really tough to tell. I mean, I I do think there is a John Bolton narrative here of of causing trouble in the past. And maybe he did something here. It's tough to tell. One thing that's a marker for me is the introduction in some of the language of chemical and biological weapons and the changing of the meaning of denuclearization by John Bolton in some of his statements. I will tell you right now, there's no way the North Koreans are giving up their chemical and bio programs. If they're even thinking about denuclearization, nuclear, they have no military hardware left to ever deter the United States. That's just not going to be part of the any of their thought process. So if that was the John Bolton poison pill, he succeeded. Tough to tell where that came from. I will say though I have heard a couple instances of chemical and bio being brought up in some other administration statements but you've got to dig for them this isn't stuff that's ever part of bilateral negotiations they're they're in like vague US Japan sort of statements and press statements going back so it's tough to tell if Bolton did do something here I, I'm suspicious but it it is really tough to tell the other thing I would just offer very quickly is this administration has a problem in terms of what its overall ideological perspective is when it comes to all foreign policy issues. I mean, you have John Bolton, who you can't really call him a neocon, but let's say a a nationalist on steroids. Pompeo, hawkish, I would say. Steve Began, I mean, listening to his Stanford remarks, I would consider him more in the realist camp. So you have all these different opinions that are all thrown together. What happens? It's chaos, and that's a problem. Yeah, that's
1: a pretty common theme when you Hear people talk about or try to discern the Trump administration's approach to foreign policy. Chaos is always a word that's high up in the (laughs) in the ranks there. But yeah, I can't. So uh, speaking of sort of the what appears and disappears, one of the things that I worried about early on was the fire and fury. There's a lot of saber rattling, a lot of sort of loose talk about the military options if the negotiations don't work out. And you know, you always assume some of that is, you know, just leverage trying to let it be you know, remember that we we might, you know, we could as a even though it was sounded dumb and dangerous. Um but then that's just like stopped. I
2: haven't heard any of that for
1: a long time. Is that strategic or is that just because they're thinking about other things?
2: I think it is the way I look at this, being a guy who who who's in the media a little bit and, and does work with the national interest, I'm always interested in how visuals impact foreign policy. And one thing that struck me is you notice that the rhetoric stops right around November 2017 when the ICBM test stopped. I think for Trump, Trump got very upset about those missile tests because I think they made him feel weak. Especially if you go back before Trump was inaugurated, what was the tweet he put out? Something in the effect like, uh, North Koreans are not going to test ICBMs. I will not let that happen. Well, they happened. They happened multiple times. And for him- watching Fox News all the time, seeing all the commentators and all these people warning about these ICBMs, the threat to the United States. For him, I think that, that made the situation much more complex and, and made him angry. But if you notice, testing stops, his, his language changes. And what's the thing he keeps talking about today, guys? What's his favorite thing that he wants from the North Koreans to do? To not test anymore. I think that is a, a big part of this that I think we're just missing.
0: That suggests, I think, a real tension between what Steve Began was trying to do on the ground and what Trump himself wanted to do, right? So Trump wants the appearance of denuclearization. Began was actually trying to get some sort of deal where we got something concrete, even if it wasn't actually denuclearization.
1: Yeah, no, I, I mean, so that brings up sort of next steps, right? I mean, what's left for them to try? Are we now down to arms control? <laughs> I mean, I are we going to pivot yeah. right to arms control? So, all right, well, hug uh, guys. Let's just make sure nothing goes off.
2: The the challenge here is is who is going to be the American president who's going to make peace with this issue? Who is going to be the one to say? North Korea, I mean, I, I don't even know how you'd be able to say it. You can't say North Korea is a, a nuclear weapon state because of all the political ramifications that would come from that. But can you get to a place where you say they have nuclear weapons, this is a problem, but we're we're more focused on ensuring that there's never a second Korean war. We're We're more focused on making sure that millions of people don't die in a conflict like that. I think, you know, as I go across the country, I talk to people on this who are not you know, experts like this you know, in the weeds on this issue, a lot of Americans are okay with that. I mean, let's face it, Russia has thousands of nuclear weapons that could decimate the United States countless times over, China, other countries. This is not a unique problem in international affairs. For whatever reason, we have this fixation about trying to get North Korea to give up these weapons. And I... Again, it's the hardest thing to do. Uh, You know, I I think if the Trump administration were to to change its approach, go to arms control. You know, the first thing you could try to do and say is, okay, let's cap the threat. I mean, that is at least threat mitigation. I mean, that is a core tenet of anybody's foreign policy. So, are we going to get there? Probably not. But I, I, I still hold out hope.
0: Yeah, I mean, to some extent, I think that's what I I hear a lot of very knowledgeable observers saying about Hanoi was that that Young Beyond Deal wasn't a great deal because the sanctions relief would have been very excessive for the North Koreans, but there are ways in which it could have hobbled their production of further weapons, and that would have been an effective way, potentially, of actually capping the program, as you suggest. Yeah,
1: and if you just assume that you can't get them to denuclearize, then then it's all about tweaking. It's not about you know, winning. It's about improving. And so, you know, things that the United States could do that are in our own interest anyway, you know, end the war. I mean, there's, you know, pull some troops out. I mean, we don't need to be in the firing line. I mean, reduce the the fear on their side from ourselves. I mean, I, you can sort of imagine a lot of positive steps. The, the problem for me now is if Trump couldn't do it, given the weird kind of political bubble he created for himself. What other president politically can afford to give North Korea anything?
2: And it even gets more complex from there. Think about it from Kim Jong-un's perspective. You're Kim. You you see this negotiation sort of stalling out a little bit. Kim has options. I mean, Kim during his his New Year's speech talked about a new way. A lot of people said, oh, that's missile testing. That's nuclear testing. No. That means going to China and going to Xi Jinping and saying, President Xi, I've done everything I can to work with the Americans. They're not going to be reasonable. I want Belt and Road Initiative to come into North Korea now. Ease these sanctions unilaterally on your own, which the Chinese have done before. They've weakened them countless times. And unfortunately, North Korea becomes almost a de facto province of China. Kim does not like that. North Korean foreign policy has always been from the 1950s to the really 1980s, playing off the great powers against one another and doing very well at that job. If Kim feels boxed in, yeah, he will go to China. And that would be devastating to President Moon, who has staked his whole political career and legacy on trying to bring the North Koreans in and fostering some sort of peace regime on the peninsula. And, and he would be the one who'd be the most impacted. And that would be devastating.
0: Yeah, that would be pretty terrible. I do kind of want to, before we wrap up, I want to flip Trevor's question on its head a little because you're saying what other president could do this? Well, I want to talk about what we could achieve in the last two years of the Trump administration or potentially six years. But let's say two years for right now as the as the practical question here. Um it seems like they came back from Hanoi. There hasn't been an escalation in rhetoric again. So it looks like even though the talks failed, we're not going immediately back to hostilities. So what can we do from here to try and sort of confidence build, improve the relationship? And then the second part of the question, what can this administration successfully do, right? Because I think we can all say what a normal administration could achieve, what can this administration, as chaotic as it is, actually achieve in two years?
2: Really good questions. I, I think there was a deal on the table that was floated in Vox and some other outlets that talked about a, a, a peace declaration ending the Korean War. You know, if Donald Trump wants to have legacy, if he wants to, no matter what happens with the Mueller probe or anything else, if he wants a page in history that says I did this, this is important. That's it. For Kim, that's huge too, because he can go back to Pyongyang and say. We have a new relationship with the Americans. We actually are moving towards a peace regime. Maybe we can trust them. So I think that's important. I think liaison offices are still very, very much on the table. I mean, they need to be able to talk to one another. But if you have a, a Cuban Missile Crisis type situation, imagine if we couldn't talk to the Soviets. I mean, that's that's crazy. That's not, you know, it's not being an appeaser or Neville Chamberlain. It's just makes a lot of common sense. And I do think the Young Beyond deal can be tweaked. I think it can be modified. I think you'd have to give them a little bit less sanctions relief, but let Seoul go forward with all these different inter-Korean projects. I think there's a deal here. I think what's going to happen is there's going to be a couple weeks of pause. I think you're going to see President Moon get heavily involved in this process. You might even see him go to Pyongyang to get sort of a temperature from from Kim Jong-un. He comes back to Washington. We have a third summit somewhere. And we have a deal.
0: Well, fingers crossed. That sounds like it would be a very good outcome here. So that's a great place to wrap up for the day. Uh, Thanks so much for joining us, Harry. Thanks for having me. And uh, thanks to everybody at home for listening. If you like the show, please leave us a good review on iTunes or wherever else you find your podcasts. We'll see you next time.